0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. With one big event down, and that would be NVIDIA, the countdown is on for the next one now, and that would be Powell. I'm Kelly Evans, and ahead this hour, NVIDIA's gains are fizzling out even after its blowout quarter. What does that tell us about sentiment ahead of Fed Chair Powell's speech in Jackson Hole tomorrow? The Dow's down almost 200 points, now the Nasdaq down 1%. And Jackson Hole is our big focus today because what Powell says and where the Fed goes from here has major implications for the economy, for the markets. We're going to break out the Powell playbook to look at how to position for a hawkish versus a dovish Powell and the names involved in each scenario. And also for Main Street, while Fed officials gather in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, we went to a better place to get a pulse for how rates and inflation are hitting the consumer. That would be the Jackson Hole Diner here in New Jersey, what we heard there coming up. But first, to Steve Leesman out in the actual Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It turns out the diners kind of named for it, Stephen. they used to send him some freebies, but that, those were bygones and bygones. What are you hearing out there? And, and by the way, is the market
2: sell-off Harker's fault? Well, I don't know about that. The reversal definitely coincided with the 10 a.m. interview we did with uh, Harker. Uh, but uh, it's hard to sort of think about anything he said that would spark a sell-off. He told us he doesn't see more rate hikes this year and he doesn't see cuts this year. But that could happen next year. I see us staying steady uh, throughout the rest of this year. Then we'll see all the data evolve. If we see inflation coming down quicker than we expect, Again, this is what I'm hearing from the soft data I'm getting from my contacts. Uh Then we might cut sooner rather than later, but I think we have to let that play out. Sooner being the first half of the year? We'll see. Harker expressed concern about the economy, saying his business contacts uh, did suggest some consumer slowing and some loosening in the job market. Fed Chair Jay Powell may adopt some of that uh, outlook in his speech tomorrow. Almost certainly, he's going to suggest that risks are more balanced than they were when the Fed last met in the mountains a year ago, and he gave that hawkish speech. speech that everybody still talks about about the need to bring down inflation. Inflation, though, has fallen sharply since last year. The unemployment rate, though, hasn't budged, and growth is. Well, it's running above trend. We have a 2.4% trailing four quarters, but running 5.9% on that, uh, over-exaggerated uh, Atlanta Fed GDP now. So we've got to listen closely to Marta Powell and see uh, if the strong growth numbers are a reason for tighter policy. If you're willing to abide it for a while, let that work through the system, and then en route to an eventual economic slowdown. But it is clear, Kelly, that the better inflation numbers mean Powell does not need to be as hawkish this year as he was last. He could suggest the risks here are more balanced now.
0: Yeah. Any scuttlebutt there, Steve? And the, I, I, Normally, I would say like in the hallways, but... Uh, on the lake, I mean what, what are what are people whispering about or expecting do you think
2: you know I, I would say that the issue of the strong GDP numbers and inflation coming down is a real puzzle to a lot of economists. It could suggest there's more productivity in the economy um, the, <laughs> I say this advisedly, I don't want to say this nationally, but the word transitory has sort of been mentioned a couple times in some conversations I've hey. had, which is that maybe a, a lot of inflation ended up being transitory just over a longer period than the body politic had any uh, tolerance for. That, you know, it eventually came down, did it come down as a result of uh, the higher interest rates or was it supply chains opening up? Was it some combination of the two? So there's a lot of thinking right now about the extent to which um, you have this two sort of anomalous ideas of strong growth and low inflation. You're,
0: you went there. You, 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 I'm, we're going to debate it. I think that's the perfect... <laughs> Perfect debate yeah. to have, actually. Steve, for now, thanks. We'll let you go. We appreciate it. Our Steve Leisman out in Jackson Hole. Let's turn to our all-star panel now as we debate the impact all of this is having on the economy and could have. Joining us now, former Atlanta Fed President Dennis Lockhart, City Chief U.S. Economist Andrew Hollenhorst, and Bleakley Financial Group's Peter Buchvar. He's here on set with me. Welcome to all of you. Dennis, I'll start with you if I may. You want to go there? Was, was inflation transitory after all?
3: Yeah, it's Maybe it's time to rehabilitate the word uh, transitory <laughs> after a couple of years. Uh, it could very well be that what, what we're seeing uh, is simply uh, a lot of things getting into balance through what I would call natural disinflation, and uh, I wouldn't completely rule that out. Uh, the Fed policies probably helped that, but there could also be a process at work that simply means that supply chains are settling down and uh, supply and demand is getting into better balance.
0: Peter, I feel like I need to bring you in here. I'm, I'm not sure what would you say about that?
4: Well, there's never anything transitory about services inflation. It's always persistently higher, about 3% a year. It's goods prices that have averaged about zero core goods prices in the 20 years leading into COVID. That's where we saw that cyclical spike. Now, with services, inflation, is it transitory? Well, home prices are up 40% in a couple of years, and they're not falling. They're still rising, albeit modestly. So I think the key for inflation in the next couple of years is do goods prices settle back to that zero sort of trend, or are we in something that's new, more structural, where maybe one to three percent type goods inflation, when combined with persistent services inflation, can lead to maybe three to four percent type trend line inflation sustainably, rather than one to two pre-COVID.
0: It's a great point, Andrew. It's why people are debating everything from you know what China is going to be doing and how, and what the impact they'll be having to. Maybe we get more tariffs, maybe we don't, maybe it doesn't have an impact. Maybe it's do you want to comment on where you think core goods and, and inflation is headed and what that means for rates overall?
5: Yeah, I think the idea of transitory is probably most clearly a goods sector issue where we have things like used car prices that came up a lot, they've come back down again. I think what the Fed needs to be careful about here is taking too much credit for the slowing that we've seen in goods inflation. That that really was this kind of special pandemic supply chain affected period. And and that has proved to be, in a way, in much longer terms than anyone expected transitory. But where you're not getting transitory inflation is in services, I would agree with Peter, Um, not only in shelter prices where we have, you know, if you look at the last three existing home sales numbers, uh, prices moving up at double-digit annualized month-on-month rates. That's not going to be consistent with 2% inflation. And then, right, on core goods inflation, Um, That's where we do have some structural changes in the economy, which means that we're not going to have the kind of downward pressure that we used to. So structurally, you could have stronger goods prices. Cyclically, you have stronger shelter prices. And then you have wage growth. Wage growth is still running too fast to be consistent with 2 percent inflation. That's going to push through in terms of non-shelter service prices.
0: So, Dennis, from a kind of a policy point of view, we we did see something very impactful from Powell a year ago. If I recall, it was a pretty short speech and and people have joked it's the one where he Basically, just said, you know, hell is coming for lack of a better term. But then it didn't come. Um, so, so what do you expect from him now?
3: Um, I, ex- I expect that he will probably emphasize that the risks are uh, are two sided. Now, uh, that it's not going to be quite as strident a speech as he gave a year ago. Uh, I don't expect him to introduce anything particularly novel in this speech. I think he'll reinforce messages that we've all heard before in the press conferences, particularly. Um, And, uh, you know, I I would I would expect that he might he might put the current moment in context in order to kind of explain the positioning of the Fed at the moment. But I don't expect a lot of really uh, news coming out of this speech.
0: All right, Peter, we're going to talk more about this in a moment. But what are you thinking investment wise uh, is at stake here based on the comments we'll, we'll hear in the morning?
4: Well, investment-wise the most interesting thing over the past couple of weeks has been the rise in longer-term interest rates. You know, we're also focused on what the Fed's going to do with the Fed funds rate. I think people got complacent that we had this downward trajectory in inflation and everyone thinking that it's all clear on the rate side, and then all of a sudden the 10-year yield goes up 50 basis points in a month. That is not in control of what the Fed is doing. It's happening for potentially other reasons like ECB QT, BOJ moving the widening yield curve control. And I think that sort of complicates things here because uh, it, it, the, the Powell's next thing and tying it into investments is, do they keep rates high for a while? Mm-hmm. That's sort of the next battle that Powell has to deal with. And I think that reality is now sinking into asset markets. 20 times earnings? Well, if the Fed funds rate's going to stay high for a while, do I really want to pay that? Right. And now we're seeing all the retail earnings that are pointing to a softening consumer And what that means, so I I think this rally in the markets deservingly is getting tested right now. At the same time, bonds are selling off. So you're sort of in that 2022 situation where maybe we're on the cusp of an equity sell. At the same time, bonds are selling off. Therefore, there's nowhere to hide other than short term treasuries.
0: Right. Andrew, what would you add to that from a macro point of view?
5: Yeah, I think that's right. I think the conversation is transitioning away from how high will the Fed raise rates? Maybe they're going to do one more rate hike, maybe they're not. And two, where is the kind of neutral level of interest rates that's going to you neither provide restriction nor stimulus to the economy. And and that's what rates are going to be centered around going forward. And that's what's going to determine the level of longer-term yield. So what I'm interested in from Chair Powell's comments tomorrow is what is he going to tell us about this so-called R-star? Is he going to reflect the views that we heard from New York Fed President Williams that that neutral rate hasn't risen? Or is he going to look at the data and say, well, look, we've had two, three quarters of 2% plus GDP growth. We have inflation that hasn't returned to target yet and maybe some emerging upside risks. And maybe we should be thinking about a higher R star, a higher neutral real interest rate. Um, So I think when when you look at those back-end yields, when you look at 10-year yields that are higher now, I think that is the market starting to... Price, that conversation that we may hear tomorrow.
0: So then real quickly, Dennis, before I let you go, would you and I maybe Powell wades into this explicitly, maybe he doesn't. But do you think that policy, let's call it at two percent real terms here, is that restrictive enough? Because we haven't even been up here since the mid 2000s when equity multiples were much lower. We were at basically half a percent all of last decade and we could barely grow. Um, do we stay? Do we need two percent? Do we need even higher or is that too high already?
3: Are you talking about the neutral rate? two percent? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's it's being discussed broadly. I, I'm not sure Powell's going to comment on it uh, simply because the neutral rate is a concept that is just is not observable and it's it's qu- quite debatable and it has to be modeled and it's just a, a, a little bit too complicated for the messaging that he needs to do tomorrow. I, I do favor the view that maybe whatever the neutral rate is, it's higher than it used to be um, and he may make some kind of reference to that, but uh, I'm not sure it's going to be central to his message tomorrow.
0: Yeah, but I agree with what you said, Peter, that the kind of the bond markets and stock markets everyone trying to figure out are rates going to be higher for longer? And is that our star so to speak, part of it. We'll leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Dennis Lockhart, Andrew Hollenhorst, and Peter Buchvar. Now let's look at what's at stake for the market based on what Powell says tomorrow. How should you position your portfolio for a hawkish versus a more dovish outcome? Jenny Harrington, we got her to stick around. She's <laughs> here with the Powell playbook. Jenny, we really appreciate this. Gilman Hill Asset Management CEO and Portfolio Manager. Um, and let, let's start with the dovish case. Give us the playbook for that first.
6: Okay. So... The dovish case isn't really that good, and I'll give you a preview of the hawkish case. Like that's not really that good either. So if you think about what's a what's a dovish case, a definitive pause, patience with getting to two percent, terminal rate of five and a half, no chance of rate cuts. By the way, no chance of rate cuts no matter what. So I would just say take rate cuts off the table. That's not like part of really dovish. They're just not out there, I don't think. So what's behind that? What's behind the dovish case? Why would they get dovish? Because the consumer's weakening, because corporate earnings are slowing, because the economy is under control and it do- it's not showing robust growth. So what's behind the dovish isn't really that great. What that would say is if we're at $220 earnings on the S&P 500 right now and expectations for 2024 are 240, and that's 12 plus percent earnings growth, a dovish case would say, hey, good luck getting to that 240. That's hmm. going to be really hard. So a dovish case isn't that great.
0: Okay, interesting, because most people would assume that's a knee-jerk positive. Right? I guess we kind of know the Not answer <laughs> in advance than if he's hawkish, but I'm curious if you could walk us through this scenario as well.
6: Okay, so a hawkish case. Um, so in a hawkish case, we have, oh, look at this. Sorry, this is my first time with the Telecaster. We have really strong language on 2%. We have stubbornness of inflation. We have a need for more tightening. And in that case, the terminal rate would be 6 to 6.5%. And, and let's, like, the way we said what's behind that, what's behind that, that means that rates are going to be higher. They're going to be higher for longer. Inflation's not coming under control. That's going to take money out of the consumer pockets, too. So, like, behind that isn't that great. So, while we could see earnings actually grow, right, because the economy is still too hot, what those high interest rates do is they say, hey, valuations are kind of capped here because there's a remarkably precise correlation between inflation and the valuation of the S&P 500. So if you have higher inflation, no one wants to pay 20 to 22 times earnings. And if you're only gonna, and if you're gonna have a market that's higher from here, you need to either continue to pay 20 times earnings and have earnings grow to 240, or you need to pay 22 times earnings if they're going to stay at 220. So both of these cases lead you to a market that I don't think, a broad market, an S&P 500, that I don't think has too much room for upside from here.
0: Interesting. Okay. I know that it's not like you're not buying anything though here. So what kind right. of stocks you do you? You always buy something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there's, so there's always a bull market somewhere.
6: That's right. Who said that? <laughs> um, famous guy. So, um, so first of all, if you're an investor, you don't reposition your portfolio. Hopefully you've had your position, your portfolio positioned like we have for years in advance, where if the market is kind of meh, which is what we're expecting, you know what you do? You chug along, you're well positioned. Then when eventually a bull market comes along, a broad market, bull market, you participate in that upside. But how do you get through this? It's with the stocks that are either irrationally low valuations, non-cyclical, growth delivering, being able to deliver growth regardless of the cycle. And right now, international too. Hmm. So in that case, You've got like really low valuations in our portfolio on VF Corp, which we just added, which is down 80% from its high, trading at 10 times earnings. Down North Face and Timberland. It's basically just overly discounted the death of the consumer. So even if the consumer is weakening, the share price has moved way, way, way more than the reality of that. (laughs) Or Cisco Systems, which reported earnings last week, it's trading at 13 and a half times. It's like the cheapest tech stock there is. And their earnings growth is really great because whatever technology is out there, you need Cisco Systems and they're growing. So those are kind of like, irrationally low valuations out there.
0: Very interesting. How how do you know? So and maybe just give a you know, make sure you're not in a value trap. I mean, this is the quintessential (laughs) question.
6: Okay, but the value trap, like that's a whole separate conversation on the research process and the due diligence and understanding what's actually behind it. Is there realistic earnings growth? What's the free cash flow like? So that's just part of the research process, because when you run a screen, you can look for things that are just a low valuation and you're going to get, I don't know, 1,500 companies spit back, but maybe only 100 of them you find investable and maybe only invest in 30. So the research process calls that out, but it's hard work.
0: All right. Before we let you go, give us one more. You mentioned VF. You like Cisco here. Anything else? Okay.
6: I think on the non-cyclical, this is a really interesting place to be too. So you could look at Ventos, which is a real estate investment trust that invests in the own, sorry, um, retirement communities. Or you could look at Organon, which is a a healthcare stock that has a lot in um, maternal um, sorry, in, in uh, what I, I'm jumbling my words. Sorry, in fertility and female health drugs, and that's yeah. very counter cyclical, really undervalued. Decent little earnings growth ahead.
0: I still remember that. It was a spin out of Merck or something. I remember a couple exactly. of years Spun back. a out yeah. of Merck Absolutely. a couple of years
6: ago. And so it's been in that in that like spin-off no man's land for the last few years, which is why it's so under the radar.
0: Totally, and a great point. Jenny, a lot to think about uh, tomorrow from Powell. You know, he whatever he says, maybe female health fertility or whatever is, <laughs> is a place to hide. Uh, <laughs> Jenny Harrington, thanks for sticking around. We appreciate your time today. Thanks. Uh, Jay Powell, by the way, isn't the only one speaking from Jackson Hole tomorrow. We've got two big first on CNBC interviews, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester and Chicago Fed's Austin Goolsbee. We will hear from them directly here tomorrow on CNBC. Steal ahead, before I made it in here today, I did make another stop along the way. Well, I made it to Jackson Hole, diner that is, in Inglewood, New Jersey, to ask people here how they feel about inflation and the economy what they told us and the high-profile guest who showed up, too. We'll reveal that next. As we go to break, here's a look at your markets and your session lows with the Dow down 232 points now. The Nasdaq down 1%, giving up all of its earlier gains as NVIDIA falls way back from its initial post-earnings rally. Ten-year, up a hair to 4.225%. We're back after this Welcome back to The Exchange. As we count down to Powell's big speech in Jackson Hole tomorrow, will he signal more rate hikes or higher for longer or maybe a looser data dependence? Well, regardless, they've already hiked at the fastest pace in 40 years. Is that doing enough to tame inflation? What better way to get the pulse of Main Street America than talking to the patrons having breakfast at our local diner? Not just any diner either. Today, to Mark Powell's speech, we stopped by the Jackson Hole Diner in Inglewood, New Jersey. And here's what we heard.
8: Food cost this high. It's killing small businesses. It's very difficult to make. A lot of people, it like, it pushes you away from going out there and opening up businesses. Not right now. It's... The...
0: I'm interested to hear you say that because we know it was really bad the last couple of years, but is there any sign of it moderating now and things kind of a turning a corner?
8: I think so, little by little, eventually, yes, but... But right now, even business has slowed down. All the businesses, all the restaurants slowed down. We're getting killed here in New York. I work in construction, and seeing how the material costs have gone sky high,
5: it's been affecting our industry.
0: You mentioned earlier kind of the grocery store experience. I think that's one thing a lot of people are grappling with. What's it like these days?
5: It's expensive. Corner to the market.
0: You literally buy stuff, and you walk out. You're like, what did I buy for $400? And it's... It's insane. And maybe you put a hobby on the back burner or you put a trip on the back burner.
4: But, yeah, you have the means to cover it, but that doesn't mean you're living your life to the fullest how you want.
0: Well, my next guest has a front row view of how the consumer is doing. Let's bring in Matt Schultz. He's chief credit analyst at LendingTree. Matt, Welcome. Thanks for having me. We want to respond to what you heard there. So, you know, we asked a broad basket of questions about the economy and everything else, and it just kept coming back to inflation, specifically food inflation, gasoline we heard about, and obviously uh, just kind of this general unease about the environment.
9: Yeah, what, what I just heard doesn't surprise me at all. The truth is that even in the best of economic times, the average American household's financial margin for error is pretty tiny then when you factor in inflation, especially inflation on things like groceries and gas and the fundamental things of life, it really takes a big toll. And then you add in higher interest rates and things like that. It's, It's a tough time for a lot of people.
0: That said, the the big picture data seem to be telling one story while the sentiment data are telling, although the sentiment data have improved as well. But big picture, we keep hearing, you know, bank accounts are 30 percent higher than pre-pandemic. We haven't run through excess uh, savings yet. The labor market is still strong. Um, so it, it doesn't paint this this picture of hardship.
9: Yeah, it's it's such an interesting time because you're right, even generally speaking from the banks, we've heard that the consumer is doing pretty well, that's starting to change a little bit. We've seen uh, some banks in the last little while talk about credit card delinquencies, in particular, spiking. But what I get the feeling is what what is happening is that people are generally doing OK. They're generally handling their business, but they're not that far from being in a little bit of a dicey situation, whether that's a, obviously a job loss, medical emergency, things like that, the margin for error is pretty thin.
0: So, in the housing market, where usually, you know, kind of on the front lines, but so many people have fixed mortgages and, and very few have been purchasers during this high rate environment, where, if anywhere, do you see higher rates starting to bite consumers?
9: Well, rates are starting to bite consumers all over the place, and really what it's done is it's changed the calculus for a lot of people because somebody who was thinking, oh, a couple of years ago, oh, this is about the amount of house I can buy, or this is the amount of car I can buy, they've had to change that because interest rates play such a huge role and are so so fundamental to those costs that it's ended up leaving a lot of people disappointed Uh, settling either for not buying a house, not buying a car or settling for less than they originally thought that they'd be able to. So that's that's a discouraging thing for a lot of people.
0: Do you think there's any cushion from the fact that people are making money on their cash now for the first time in years and feeling like it's almost a, a stimulus check?
9: Yeah, no, I don't think there's any question that the yields that people are getting on these high-yield savings accounts is making a really big difference. For as much negative as there's been about interest rates, there's no denying that these high-yield savings accounts, where you can get 4 sometimes 5%, is really significant, especially when you're talking about in American households, where that extra percent or two over time can really, really add up and can make a difference.
0: Yeah, anything else you want to mention because I did notice that you said consumers do have a little bit of bargaining power. I mean, when you can actually call and lower your credit card interest rate if I'm not mistaken, is that right?
9: Yeah, it's something that I preach all the time, and uh, lendingtree did a survey about a uh, earlier this year talking about how seventy six percent of folks who ask for a lower interest rate on their one of their credit cards, in the past year got one, and the average reduction was about six percentage points. That's like going from 25% to 19%. It's a really significant thing. And those success rates that we're seeing, which we've seen for years even going back pre-COVID, are an indication that it's not just folks with 750 credit scores and long track records that are getting their way on this. It's regular folks, too, so it's absolutely worth making that call.
0: All right, good nugget as we uh, head into what could be more troubled waters. Matt, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Matt Schultz with LendingTree. Inflation and the economy was also a hot topic at last night's GOP debate. And believe it or not, we ran into one high-profile politician at the diner this morning. New Jersey rep and problem solvers caucus co-chair Josh Gottheimer was literally just sitting there having breakfast on his way out. We asked him what he thinks the Fed's next move should be.
10: I think, frankly, right now, that's enough with what they've done. I think they ought got to give it time to see the impact. The good news is, if you actually look, especially compared to other nations in the world, uh, leading nations in the world, we're down, inflation's down the last 13 months. Wages are actually going up in the right direction. So you're seeing things begin to stabilize coming out of the pandemic, which was obviously sent the the whole global economy into a tailspin uh, supply chain issues and other issues that we were dealing with so the good news is we're moving in the right direction we've taken steps in Washington to actually pay down the debt and cut back on uh, and cut back on things that I think is the right move um, but the bottom line is there's more to do there's more work to do but I think we're moving in the right direction now we got to do more on affordability right on, on all fronts but I think we've if you look at where we are with wages job growth Uh, manufacturing job growth, all things are moving in the right direction in the last 13 or so months.
0: I love it. You go to the diner, you run into the local politician. Coming up, Are we so sure we've never seen anything like NVIDIA's blowout numbers before? The historical comparison you'll wanna know about is coming up after the break. But first, take a look at the Dow at session lows with Boeing, Walgreens, Intel, and Disney, all among the worst performers down more than 3%. One of the few names in the green, Dow Inc. We're back after this here on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. NVIDIA is the name everyone's talking about today. The stock hit a fresh all-time high above 500 before pulling back. It's still up 2.5%, though. Let's bring in Dom Chu to run through the highlights for us. Dom? All
1: right, so, Kelly, we've heard a lot of different arguments about this kind of bull-bear debate on where NVIDIA stands, given this more-than-tripling of the stock over the course of just this year-to-day period. So kind of let's let's frame up for you why this debate is raging. And obviously right now the bulls are winning this debate after a 230 you can see some percent gain on a year-to-day basis. The QQQ trust is up 37% driven primarily by the rise in Nvidia. And even the S&P 500 is seen an outsized move because of that drag higher by Nvidia shares. Just to put things in perspective, one of the reasons why the bears feel this is so overextended is just how it's trading kind of akin to where it's trading over a normal basis. Now, over the last 200 days or so and the last 50, this is currently trading just about 10 percent above its 200 or 50-day moving average, and if you take a look at where trades longer term over its 200-day moving average, it's 69% above where that is. That is a huge momentum move higher, meaning there might be a mean reversion trade at some point, just to see it come down a little bit. That's the bear case for Nvidia and why it's so extended. But what is the bull case? even with these levels at a 235% gain. Check out the valuation argument. It trades at currently just around 40 times next year's expected earnings. That's steep. It's more than double the S&P 500. So take a look at this, 40. Now, here's the interesting part. Over the last five years, what's been the average forward price to earnings ratio? According to FactSet, it's been 40 right there. So it's trading just at its historical average over the last five years. And then when you factor in earnings growth and the price you pay for it, look at this. Price to earnings growth over the last five years, it's actually just about 1.1. You're the lowest level that we've seen in the last five years. So there, Kelly, is your bull bear debate on why this stock is such a lightning rod for investors right now, because there is a valuation argument to be made Indeed. that it's trading cheap yep. compared to where it should be given expectations. And where it has been on average over the last five years. Not
0: to mention that forward P.E. I think would be lower if we were using the actual numbers that ended up. Hey,
1: you and, know what I- oh, Yes. And, and the forward P.E.s have been coming down. Why? Because analysts have been moving up their expectations for exactly. earnings over the over the last several weeks. Now, a lot of people calling it their top pick going into earnings. So you can kind of see when the price kind of stays a little bit where it is going higher, but the earnings estimates go higher. That P.E. ratio compresses. Practically
0: a value stock. But let's put this into some context. First of all, take a look at just how incredible NVIDIA's run has been. Here's the 10-year chart, uh, which doesn't even go all the way back to the IPO. But right there, you can see it, 128,000% gain. Okay, so people are saying, especially with the revenue numbers, have we ever seen anything like this, especially where the underlying fundamentals are so strong? Well, maybe we have, actually. None other, than none other, she said, than Cisco had a similar run in the late 1990s, with revenue nearly doubling every year during the decade as the internet boom led to a tidal wave of demand for its networking products. The stock ran up from the single digits, Dom highlighted it there, to almost $80 in the year 2000, with a market cap of more than half a trillion dollars. But in the ensuing bear market, it lost 90% of its value, and we know the rest of the story. It then traded sideways for most of the next decade.
1: So this is Cisco Systems maybe this time around, but I would say this, The bull bear debate gets even more complex because that was very clearly the dot-com bust. It's hard to say whether or not we are in a a general dot-com type environment right now. There are specific parts of the market, maybe artificial intelligence, that are acting a little bit like it. But the broader macro economy is very different right now, Kel.
0: Yeah, for, for the time being, at least. Here's your comparison one over the other. You, you, we report. You decide. Dom, <laughs> thank you, you very much.
11: You got it, our Dom
0: it. Chu. Let's get over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler,
11: thank you very much, folks. Russian President Vladimir Putin acknowledged yesterday's private jet crash for the first time on Russian television, offering his condolences. To the relatives of the Wagner leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and to the families of the other nine victims, Putin says the head of the investigative committee has started a preliminary investigation that will be, quote, conducted in full and brought to a conclusion. The Justice Department suing SpaceX for allegedly discriminating against refugees and and asylum seekers in hiring practices. The suit says Elon Musk's space company wrongly claimed that export control laws limited hiring to citizens and permanent residents of the U.S. The Civil Rights Division assistant attorney general said the four-year investigation found that SpaceX routinely discouraged asylum seekers and refugees from pursuing work opportunities at the company. And Barbie, there she goes again, just unseated the uh, Super Mario Brothers movies as 2023's highest-grossing film in North America. Greta Gerwig's Barbie, with a domestic gross now above $575 million. Mario generated $574 million domestically. The film, uh, toys are the stars here, folks. The film also on track to surpass Mario in global box office. Bringing in more than $1.3 billion. Go Barbie. Kelly, Becky. It. It's like the war of the toys
0: or the entertainment yeah. companies or something. Tyler, thanks. Coming up, my next guest says this name is the value stock to own to take advantage of AI. So would you rather own NVIDIA at 32 times forward earnings or something at 20 times? And if you think you know what this is, by the way, tweet me at KellyCNBC and we'll reveal it after the break. Welcome back to The Exchange. NVIDIA shares hitting an all-time high on the heels of that record earnings report. Revenues up, you know, 88% from the previous quarter, doubling year over year. But my next guest is betting on a different value play in the AI space. Joining me now is Charlie Wabrinskoy, vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel. NVIDIA is a value stock, Charlie. 32 times? Come on. Even I'm thinking uh, maybe that's a bargain. You know, it's only a $1.2 trillion company or whatever.
8: Nvidia is not a value stock. It is a wonderful <laughs> company. Uh, the question about Nvidia is how, what is their economic moat like? Can people compete with them? My, in my opinion, that's the risk. That, that there are lots of other great semiconductor chip companies that can do a lot of what NVIDIA can do and that their economic moat is maybe not as wide as that valuation would imply. But no arguing with it, been extremely well positioned. It was first a game chip company, and now it's very much evolved to be an AI chip company.
0: Well, a lot of people were trying to guess what you think the better value play is in the space. A lot of guesses around IBM. Uh, reveal, drum roll please, what's the reveal?
8: It's Oracle. So in fairness to me, uh, we have been talking about this before people were excited about AI. And the reason Oracle is such a a value name today is because if you think about what AI is, AI is about mining data. Computers are not thinking now. They're not going to be thinking anytime soon. What companies are going to do with AI is they are going to analyze data. And the number one data software company in the world is Oracle major companies around the world have all of their data on Oracle software. And it's very hard actually to shift to anybody else. And so now AI is going to give Oracle an opportunity to analyze that data in ways that they haven't before. And you can get this name. Now, it was a real value stock two years ago, trading around 13 times. It's still less than 20. I'd say maybe 18 times earnings. So you're getting a real play on using data better at a very reasonable multiple.
0: When, and this always kind of gets into, you know, this, the interesting question, when when would you be a seller of it? I mean, are we getting close? Because once we hit 20, I think, I don't know if that's, uh, you, know, you know, your kind of thing.
8: Yeah, it's funny. That is kind of the magic number here at Ariel. We we calculate two things. We calculate an intrinsic value for the company and then we calculate a forward price earnings multiple. And 20 has historically been a number that we get squeamish on and we start to trim positions. So I would say that at 20, um, this will go from being one of my largest positions to a smaller position. But I do think this is an extremely well positioned company that can justify a 20 multiple.
0: What are some other names in the 13s right now, so to speak, that, that you like?
8: So a number of auto-related names. Um, hmm. Borg Warner is, uh, after completing its spinoff, is the number one producer of powertrains for electric vehicles. And you would think that kind of electric vehicle position is the number one company in that space uh, would justify a multiple in the high teens or 20. It's not. It's trading below 10 times earnings. Uh, Finia, which is the internal combustion spinoff from Borg Warner, is trading also at about 10, 11 times earnings. So people are nervous about auto. We think actually there's going to be good uh, rebounding demand for auto and Borg Warner and Finney are well positioned in that space. You
0: know, not to overly dwell on this, but it's felt to me for two years like we're at the end of this auto cycle, which we're clearly not. But you look at it and you say, well, how much higher can prices go? How much more saturated can the market get? Didn't everyone buy a car the last couple of years? New used car prices are all coming down. Teslas are 35% cheaper than they once were. I mean, that's why i guess you could say okay the servicing market or or something you know will stay strong but it seems to me like the 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 sort of the core of it um is a is an old story
8: yeah but it was a really dead story 2 years ago there were, there were no cars on the lot you couldn't buy a new car if you wanted one and so we do still think there is pent up demand you mentioned the big bear case which is that cars have gotten very expensive and that many buyers are struggling to make their Um, monthly payments, but there is, in our opinion, still significant demand for new cars. The price difference between new cars and used cars is very small. Um, and so we do think there's still pent up demand for uh, cars, particularly in the U.S.
0: Super interesting. That still has legs. You like the energy trade sphere is up 73% year to date. <laughs> All right, we gotta have you back when something's not going your way, Charlie.
8: Sphere is. I gotta be warn people be careful here about sphere. It's gone up a lot, and so I'm not pounding the table the way I have with you in the past.
0: All right, very good, Charlie Babrinskoy, Thanks for your time today. Thanks. We appreciate it. Joining me from Ariel Investments. Still to come, NVIDIA is not the only AI player seeing shares pop today. This name is up about 14% on a beat. And we have two mystery charts today. And we're going to talk to this CEO coming up. Before we go, I also want to draw your attention to shares of Disney, which are on pace to close at their lowest level since 2014. The stock hasn't been at this price level in nine years. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're seeing markets near session lows uh, at the highs. We were up 22 on the Dow. We're down 2.32 right now, about 30 points off the lowest level. NASDAQ down 1%. Dollar Tree is the worst performer in the S&P, despite posting a beat on the top and bottom lines. The CEO citing a challenging macro environment and joining the choir of retailers, highlighting elevated shrink, missing, stolen, or damaged goods uh, and how that's been weighing on profits. The stock is down almost 12% now. And their EPS forecast of between $0.94 and $1.04 was well below consensus estimates, which were more like $1.28. Again, that's sending shares down to their lowest level for Dollar Tree since May. Let's move along. Coming up, data privacy company Splunk. That was our mystery chart surging on an earnings beat and a guidance hike. We'll speak with CEO Gary Steele about that and the AI craze. It's coming up next. Welcome back. Shares of Splunk up almost 14% after its earnings last night. The company beat on both the top and bottom lines and gave a full year guidance hike. And investors are shrugging off the choppiness in cloud demand that management cited on the call. Joining me now in an exchange exclusive is Splunk CEO, Gary Steele. Gary, welcome.
7: Thank you so much, great to be here.
0: So just talk to me about what drove the beat last quarter.
7: You know, we just saw really good execution across the entire product line. Super proud of the team. And I think it, the combination of um, meeting the demand for our security buyers, meeting the demand for our, our observability buyers, and doing it in a really efficient way, we were we were super excited about um, being able to hold OPEX at a really low level.
0: Oh, so, so it was kind of twofold. You both had a resilient demand for, I always think of you guys sort of part cloud, part cybersecurity company, you know, sort of, for, for those of us non-specialists somewhere in the middle, resiliency, I know you always talk, but but also partly what you just said about controlling operating expenses. Just talk a little bit more about what that means in, in practice.
7: Yeah, so in the quarter, we held OPEX down 3% year over year while delivering um, ARR growth of 16%. So that combination, I think, was really well received by the investment community today.
0: Is that, you know, kind of keeping wage gains modest? Is that, a, you know, a, a workforce size or adjustment issue? Is that other kinds of expenses?
7: You know, we've been on a journey to um, drive expenses down. So we're leveraging, for example, we're leveraging global talent centers where historically we'd been very concentrated in California. Um, we're also just being super thoughtful about how do we drive efficiency in the operations of our business. And we're seeing that across how we think about real estate and the way we think about using outside resources. We're just being super thoughtful about um, where efficiency can be had and then how we can drive it into the bottom line results. And
0: just connecting some of those dots, are you able to save on both real estate and employees by going to a workforce that's maybe you know not even in the U.S. or in, in lower cost areas?
7: We're really balancing that. We've got an amazing team um, spread across the US. We're really opening up these talent centers to tap um, global talent markets as our business becomes more international. And in doing that, The overall, our overall real estate, frankly, we've saved a lot of money on real estate and there's more opportunity there as well. So we're on this journey. We think we've made tremendous progress, super proud of the results we delivered. But there's there's always more opportunity out there.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. So let's turn now to kind of the top line. What's going on with the customers? You said, as you've seen this whole year and we've heard from many other companies in this space, you've seen choppiness in cloud migrations. Why is that?
7: You know, a migration just represents a project and it's an incremental project that has costs associated with it. And so organizations can still get the value and the benefits of Splunk and use it on premise without going to the cloud. And so in this more challenged economic time, we've seen some hesitation on the part of customers to make that move to the cloud. They can still get all the benefits of Splunk, but they can do it without making that migration. Now, We fundamentally believe over the long haul, there's so much value and opportunity in getting to the cloud. And so we're very optimistic about the future and what the future holds in terms of of cloud. But in this more uncertain macroeconomic environment, people have slowed that down.
0: And how is artificial intelligence affecting your business?
7: You know, we're very enthusiastic about the potential of AI. We just came out of our user conference um, in Las Vegas in July, where we laid out basically our roadmap for AI. And we see tremendous opportunity. And what it it translates to is just better outcomes for our security users and better outcomes for our observability users. So in the Security Operations Center, for example, how do we just make it simpler and more automated and less onerous tasks be performed by individuals? And so we can really knock down a lot of the work that is um manual and effort that can oftentimes is repetitive that we can ultimately automate so we're very bullish on where we think we can go with ai and the potential that it brings to all of our customers
0: and so when you see nvidia's revenue going from seven billion dollars to you know almost 14 billion dollars in a single quarter does that make sense to you
7: well i think there's there's just a tremendous amount of interest i spend a lot of my time with our customers, understanding what they're thinking about. And literally the first question is, what are we doing in AI? Because it's on everybody's mind. And so that translates back into how do you ultimately build out the capabilities across the tech stack to enable that to happen? So I think the demand curve is there.
0: Do you think people, now the next question people are getting is, well, are, are enterprises going to be able to show monetization of AI, not just deployment, not just installation? Do you think they'll be able to show monetization in the very near term?
7: I think it's going to take some time. I think the near term, you know, it's just going to take some time. And in reality, I think organizations are planning where I think it, it, value, it benefits our customers is it should take less human resources in a security operation center over time. Much more can be automated and you can probably get better outcomes as a result. And so, I think from a customer point of view and how they're planning, I think they're being thoughtful about where they begin to see those benefits, but the potential is all there.
0: That's fascinating. Gary, thank you so much. I really appreciate your perspective today of all days with both your business and Nvidia's kind of bringing it full circle. Uh, Gary Steele is the CEO of Splunk. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.